elegant and luxurious textiles featuring pattern on pattern and a bullion exuberant hand embroidery. Come on, what's not to love? Most historic images of ornate, over-the-top embroidery tends to make us think it was destined for use by women. But oh no, not this time. Fashion in the middle of the 17th century saw the evolution of a new style. And it was all for men. In fact, the more colour, the more pattern and the more embroidery, the more fashionable these dandies considered themselves. The waistcoat is one of the rare pieces of clothing historians can date precisely, as it was announced by Charles II via Royal Decree, with Samuel Pepys writing in his famous diary on October 7, 1666, that the king hath yesterday declared his resolution of setting a fashion for clothes, which he will never alter. It will be a vest. And we're still wearing them. It was very much about King Charles II of England trying to look different from the French King Louis XIV of France and the gross extravagances displayed by his royal court, suggesting after the Great Fire of London that a more sober form of attire should be worn by gentlemen. Would you believe these vests were originally designed to discourage the lavish use of luxurious materials and ornate decoration, as well as the yards of lace by covering much of the body in plainer and cheaper materials, becoming one of the most important European fashion trends of the time. However, those sober sentiments so wonderfully promoted by the noble elite and Charles II were soon forgotten in favour of their beloved overt opulence and excessive decoration. So let's venture into a world where men dressed to exhibit the richness and magnificence of their male form through the use of lav- uh, lavish fabrics and exotic and decorative motives, forever trying to capture that ever elusive, elegant silhouette. Think opulence, luxury, splendour, then triple it. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Now, I became confused with the seemingly interchangeable use of the words vest and waistcoat, so I tried to discover if there were if there was any difference between the two. The term waistcoat denotes the termination at the waist, fair enough, whereas 
At this time, men's formal coats went well below the waist, such as a frock or morning coat. It's all very confusing to say the least, but the simplest explanation is that the vest was an element worn under a coat, tailored using luxurious fabrics, gradually becoming shorter, simpler and sleeveless until developing into the waistcoat around the 1760s. The waistcoat as we know it is a British invention, evolving from a simple sleeveless vest, so the newly restored monarch, Charles II, could look as different as possible from the French king, who was having his own difficulties. The idea came from the English traveller and adventurer Sir Robert Shirley, 1581-1628, who borrowed it from the Persian court of Shah Abbas the Great, 1571-1629. Originally, the waistcoat was longer and sleeveless because the Persian heat meant a full jacket simply wasn't practical. They were often highly decorated and useful for concealing weaponry from view. The shortening of the waistcoat from the previous longer jackets caused quite a stir, but fashion demanded a shorter cut for the dandies, peacocks and popinjays, as the fashionable young men at court were called, adding a rainbow of colours and remarkable flamboyance to their court appearances. By 1700, the skirts of the waistcoats reached above the knee and only a few had collars or sleeves. Those used for sporting purposes did away with the skirt completely. And as the waistcoat became shorter, it was also cut away in the front in the shape of a curve to uh, reveal the wearer's breeches. And by 1790, that curve became a square cut to the waist, worn with a frock coat over the top. By the 1800s, the waistcoat became an increasingly decorative and flamboyant item in the male wardrobe. A gentleman was almost never seen without his waistcoat, or if he was, he was considered undressed. Stunning silk brocades and patterned polychromatic floral motifs used especially in vests perfectly represent the luxury of fabrics and embroidery in the 18th century. And the colours were vivid, a highly significant feature of any gentleman's wardrobe at this time, expressed in rose, red, blue, green and yellow tones, denoting the wearer's personality. Fashionably worn to the upper part of the thigh, opening with a V beneath the stomach with a seemingly overriding principle that if it was highly conspicuous, ostentatious and embroidered, it was deemed fashionable. Waistcoats were generally the most elaborate article of a man's dress, made from all qualities of silk, cotton, wool and linens. And the embroidery on the vest is a particularly noteworthy remnant of the 18th century menswear, from floral sprigs worked on brocaded silks using cotton-corded quilting metalwork and even horsehair. Towards the later half of the century, the floral designs and colours became softer and more delicate. Some featured fanciful designs such as sprays of flowers, figures of children and animals.
To achieve the detail and complexity of embroidery worked on the luxurious and vividly coloured textiles, the stitching would have been worked onto the fabric before the coats or waistcoats were made up. Embroidery most likely covered the lower edge of the garment from the pocket to the hem, as well as following the two front openings and around the sleeve ends. These designs were often drawn by professionals trained in floral painting. The Art Institute of Chicago houses a French design for an embroidery around a waistcoat pocket circa 1780 to 1790. It's drawn out on green laid paper using opaque and translucent watercolour and graphite. And it was common for these drawings to be inscribed with numbers, helping both the merchant and the maker identify patterns, as well as the price when a client selected a pattern. Wall pile embroidery was used set against glossy velvet with contrasting glass buttons, lending a unique touch to any statement vest or waistcoat, but they also included printed, brocaded, quilted, tasseled or uh, incorporated silver or gold lacing. Court dress, though, would have used gold and silver metal threads or polychromatic silk threads, giving the wearer the opportunity to pose elegantly in these magnificently adorned garments, just so everyone else could see and admire their figures. A spectacular example of an uh, uncut waistcoat encrusted with gold work circa 1765 showcases the use of metal threadwork seen at this time over the pocket along the front openings and the lower edges of the waistcoat. Another example combines polychrome embroidery with gold passing thread smooth pearl areas of pink and gold foil, and spangles in pink, blue and gold. Fashionable dress at this time was luxurious, worn by the aristocracy who favoured the vivid colours, appliqué work and richly exotic embroidery. While the majority of extant examples are stitched in bright polychrome embroidery, some were white-on-white or tone-on-tone applications, such as a sleeved waistcoat from the 1740s featuring an elaborate yet subtle design embroidered in the same shade of blue as the fabric, and it's extremely elegant. Complex embroidery designs would have been worked in professional workshops, but amateur embroiderers were also widespread and in some cases completed lengths of embroidered fabric that could be purchased and made up in your size by your local tailor, with designs ranging from delicate muted borders to floral explosions in wild colours. These elaborately embroidered waistcoats were often fastened with hooks and eyes, but the majority were fastened with buttons, matching the coat being worn. And the 18th century was certainly the golden age for buttons, playing an important decorative role in both coats and waistcoats. 
Taking a great deal of artistic skill to create, buttons could be painted, made from embroidered fabric, mother of pearl, stone or encrusted gold or silver, increasing in both size and extravagance after 1780. Patterned silks and satins were covered in stunning, often ornate and intricate embroidery, and by the 1800s, the waistcoat was considered an everyday item. Designs for embroidery included outstanding naturalistic leaves, petals and intricate floral motives, with one waistcoat depicting Aesop's tale of the wolf and the crane in exquisite embroidery, indicative of the waistcoat as decoration through the playful use of this beautifully styled embroidery. It didn't matter if it was single-breasted, double-breasted, waist-length, square-cut, roll-collared, low-stand-collared or flap-pocketed. All styles were worn by the dandies of the time. Some even took to wearing two waistcoats at once, both elaborate, with the outer one unbuttoned to show the one worn underneath. Now, let's not forget at the beginning of the 1820s, it wasn't uncommon for elite or military gentlemen of the more fashionable set, particularly younger gentlemen, to wear a corset. This was done to emphasise their triangular masculine body shape, with the waistcoat becoming skin tight, showcasing their broad shoulders, pouting chest and nipped in waist. And if wearing a corset was not to their liking, the male silhouette could still be maintained with whalebone stiffeners and reinforced buttons up the front of the waistcoat itself. Waistlines could also be moulded by tightening the lacings in the back Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, was known for wearing tight corsets to attain a tiny waist, a style that was copied by many men. By the half of the 19th century, vests were definitely more sombre, yet the elaborate textures remained, harking back to that more decadent era. The paisley pattern inspired by French paisley shawls proved very popular in the 1860s, adapted by Europeans from the Indian Bota design, uh, imported from India by the East India Trading Companies, becoming one of the most popular and enduring designs in fashion history. And the best-known dandy, Beau Brummel, once the most famous man in Regency England, may have been the catalyst for the Great Masculine Revolution, where menswear evolved from the superficial pageantry of the dandy uh, peacocks to become a more personal uh, tool of prestige, power and self-expression. He found the richly embroidered silk coats, waistcoats, breeches and stockings of his youth impractical and emasculating, favouring a less is more approach where form is followed by function, popularising the precursor to the modern suit, a hybrid of the formal military uniform. 
The 1900s saw the return to sobriety, with the majority produced to match the jacket or suits they were worn with, rather than being an overt expression of originality and wealth. They became a functional item used to house a pocket watch. This was a time when a man without a waistcoat was not considered to be properly dressed. Few businessmen wore a waistcoat to work after World War II, but the 1960s saw a revival among the fashionable style tribes such as Neo-Edwardians and Teddy Boys. This time also saw the waistcoat move away from the formal item it was originally uh, designed for, being adopted by the hippies as part of their ethnic-inspired countryfied look, featuring heavy floral embroidery, fringing and patchwork. Interestingly, in professional uh, snooker tournaments, it's mandatory for the players to wear a waistcoat, with some earning extra income by displaying company logos on their waistcoats. A 2021 blog on fashionmagazine.com written by Natalie Mishi, The Surprisingly Gendered History of the Vest, suggests that the vest uh, vest has been making a return of late, with top models seen wearing reimagined versions without an undershirt. Vests, especially designed for women, were commonplace in the late 19th century and were even then seen as a symbol of gender non-conformity. By the 1920s, some women were wearing vests and other traditionally male garments as a rejection of gendered clothing notions. Mishi also writes, This unassuming top would later symbolise rebellion against ideas of gendered clothing, today exuding a stylish aura of androgynous comfort. Its appeal lies in its versatility. Fashion TikToker Gabrielle Jones believes the vest is a symbol of gender rebellion, with many embracing the gender-fluid aesthetics via their fashion statement of a garment that was once a sign of prestige and class, now representing the age of gender-fluid fashion. And to finish... This premise for a paper written by Alison Larkin, replicating Captain Cook's waistcoat, exploring the skills of a named embroiderer during the 18th century. This article discovers a project to replicate an unfinished waistcoat believed to have been embroidered in the late 1770s for Captain James Cook by his wife Elizabeth. The intention was to explore the techniques of embroidery used during the 18th century uh, and to replicate a garment belonging to a major historical figure. The original waistcoat was embroidered on Tahitian tarpa cloth with a linen backing. The embroidery used silk and metallic thread and silver plated spangles employing chain stitch, long and short stitch and tambour work. The replica was completed using materials closely approximating those available in the 1770s and constructed using 18th century methods. Wow, what an amazing journey this has been. I feel as though we've been all around the world via a waistcoat and wonder what a wonderful topic to research and use as inspiration for design. There's just so much to take away from this style of ornate embroidery.
That old saying, more is better, should be the motto for these embroidered jackets. It's that juxtaposition of textures, colours and patterns that's simply irresistible. And that's just the way I like it. Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have in presenting it to you. And I know I say this almost every episode, but this topic truly is well worth further research. It could only be rewarding to any embroidery designer. But wait, there's more to come in 2022, so do stay tuned and subscribe. Stitch Safari's now reached over 7,500 downloads and that is all thanks to you and I'm grateful. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Welp magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at January 2022 by Feedspot. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now.